All right. Good evening again. Welcome to uh, Hope Lower Town. Um, got a couple announcements that I want to just give briefly real quick. Man, I apologize. Well, I not apologize. I can't control the weather. But we had to cancel our uh, grill out. So uh, we will do that quickly because I've got a lot of uh, buns that are going to rot if we don't. So uh, we, will, we will get that scheduled here quickly. So just pay attention to email, text, the city, um, and we will hopefully get that figured out. So uh, pretty soon, ladies, you've got your uh, Bible study. It's going to be starting up this Friday, correct? Uh, at our house up in Shoreview. So if you are still interested in that, we're going to be going, the ladies are going to be going through a book from, by Jen Wilkin uh, called Women of the Word, or is that right? So uh, if you're interested in that, feel free to talk to Angela. And, uh, and then men, we're going to be starting our breakfast, men's breakfast here as well, um, pretty soon. I'd like to just get a little bit more details, but we will be doing it at the creator's space. They, they do have food, uh, officially. So, and it's actually really good. So um, anyway, it's kind of, kind of fun to be able to and I'll get, get more connected here in Lower Town and businesses there. So, anyways, um, I have to give, I have to give, sorry, I get to give a quick financial update, um, second quarter giving update. So, we're kind of halfway through the year. And again, the, some of the numbers I'm going to say are going to sound weird because this isn't just the church, okay? We're, we're part of a larger church that meets downtown Minneapolis as well. So, when I say these numbers, it's like, what? You guys are really rich in Lower Town St. Paul. And that may be the case, but I don't know because I don't look at any of that stuff. But I do know the numbers and what I'm supposed to say. So I've got a couple praises and things that, that we want to um, uh, benefit and talk, talk about, um, highlight. One is uh, God's continued provision and your faithfulness in giving. Uh, this, this quarter we had um, 63, it was 67 new donors, meaning that there was 67 people who haven't ever given to Hope Community Church that, that have in that quarter, which is uh, awesome. And we are exactly 100% in a better position than we were last year at this time, uh, which is always encouraging. So last year at this time we were uh, $200,000 in the hole. And this year, we're only $100,000 in the hole, which, hey, that's pretty good, right? Uh, so we're, we're thankful for that. And I know that sounds freaky, but it's the summer, and, and we'll, we will bounce back. And God is, has been good, if you remember last year, which was really awkward, because we had just started this in September. And come December, we were $400,000 in the hole. And people were like, what? What are you guys, what are you spending your money on? Well, it wasn't me, I promise. Um, no, I'm kidding. Anyways, we're, we're in a good place. And so, again, thank you for being generous with your gifts. Um, and then especially now that we're going to be transitioning to this new donor platform, we've been using the city. And if you're visiting, I apologize. This is just stuff. We, we don't normally talk about money uh, here at Hope. We, we really do believe that God is good and faithful. And um, we don't, we're not, yeah, we're, we, we appreciate everyone's faithfulness and their giving. Um, but we're not twisting anyone's arm to give, and, and I don't know who gives and how much they give, and I don't want to know. Um, it's none of my business. So anyways, thank you for that. Um, so anyways, we've been giving on this platform called The City, and now that's changing to My Hope CC. So it's going to be on our website. So if you go on to hopecc.com, there's that button up there in the corner that says Give. Um, it'll take you to this page now here um, that'll allow you to make a profile and that kind of thing if you don't have one already. I am actually really excited about this new, this new program, um, I hope CC, as opposed to the city. Um, the city had its perks, but this is really good as far as just everything. So very thankful for that. So if you haven't made an account with that, I've been told that you can go ahead and, and do that now, and you can find the link on our website there. Um, prayers, a couple things listed here that uh, we would continue to steward Hope's gifts well. 
uh, and with wisdom and uh, your giving allows people to be able to participate in LDI, our Leadership Development Institute. We've got um, 10 uh, full-time interns that have uh, signed up to do that this last year, this next year. Couple, which are uh, Chaz, the guy that was up here, he's going to be doing it this next year, which is pretty, pretty exciting. I get to torment him in my systematic theology class, so that's always good. Um, Okay, and then another prayer, just people transitioning, giving through my hopes you see. Um, there's gonna be a lot of unknowns, and so when you are transferring people from, and I'm not a tech guy, but one language to a different, it doesn't always work smoothly, but we're hoping that this will all work out. So if you have any other questions about our, our numbers or anything, feel free to talk to me about that, but that is our update. So I am done with that until three more months, okay? All right. Um, okay, yeah, uh, sorry, the uh, outline, if you got one, is kind of silly because I'm a obviously a terrible outliner and, and I got pretty lazy because we're talking about the Ten Commandments, so I just put one through ten uh, on there. So it's a fill in the blank if you, if you don't know them. Um, no, that's not true. But um, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments, which, which I'm excited about. And at the same time, it was, as Colin was saying, it's actually kind of a tricky topic because whether you've, if you've never stepped foot in a church before, um, there, you most likely have at least heard of the Ten Commandments or seen the tablets in some school or in some county courthouse or I don't know why you're going to the county courthouse, but you know what I'm saying. They're just whatever, whatever reason, they're, they're just out there, right? These, these tablets that people have seen them, you may know them or they've been in plays uh, or movies and um, so that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, this building has a lot of symbolism. I'm going to talk about it for a little bit, but I want to I show you a couple things. This is uh, an image of the inside of a Catholic church. And uh, tonight's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, a little theology lesson. I apologize. I don't apologize. That's what it is. Um, so this is the inside of a Catholic church. I have no idea which one. I just Googled inside of a Catholic church, and this popped up. Um, and, and so what you will notice that in every church that you walk into, especially back in the day when they were building them, they put a lot of stock into the symbolism of what things meant and why they were in a certain place and why they were there. And so if you, you look at this picture, the thing right in the center of the, of the auditorium when you walk in, right down the middle of the aisle, is, is, the, uh, is their mass altar, right? Because when you go to a Catholic church, the thing that's centered to their religion and what they do on a Sunday or any other day of the week for them is mass. So it's, it's right in the center. And off to the right side of that, there is a little pulpit, right? And, and symbolically, that's on purpose, right? Because they would preach over to the side, right? Because God's word is important, but it's not the most important thing next to the sacrament of mass. So this is the inside of a Lutheran church. It's going to look very similar. There's going to be an altar in the middle for, uh, for the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. Um, but you'll see on the left side of this church, and most older Lutheran churches have this, where the, the preaching platform is elevated, right? It's up in the air. It's higher. Why? Because they say, we believe that Scripture has a higher authority than what the Catholic Church views it, all right? So there's a little bit of symbolism there. This is the inside of a typical, it's funny, when you Google Baptist churches, it just looks like an old you know, office space, or they were very quickly put together. This one looked okay, and this church is Baptist, and so this Baptist just didn't make churches like this. So um, it's really kind of fascinating. But what's right in the middle of theirs, behind the curtains, behind these curtains, right, is the baptism, right? Because 
this baptism was a really central, important thing that, that made them stand out. And as you'll notice, the pulpit, and, and this church used to have a really big one, it's in the back, but they're kind of, they're not in anymore, these big pulpits. So um, we had these little, these little ones. And um, I wouldn't mind having a big pulpit, but that's me, sorry. There is a pulpit right in the middle. Why? Because, because the teaching of God's word is the center. It is, it is the, the main thing when it comes to Baptist theology. And so we as a church, we're, we're, we're Baptist, Baptistic, whatever you want to call it. We've used this baptismal, and it's been freezing. Oh, um, I can never get that heater to work back there. Um, and as you look at just the... The architecture of this building, you'll see the, the three-leaf clovers everywhere, and that's actually the logo of this church, is the, that three, three-leaf clover, which just represents the Trinity. You're going to see the four one, which is our logo, which is just a fancy way of making the cross just look a little more interesting. And, and when you spend time walking around this building, you'll see inlaid to every hand, right, because this building was built in 1875, that all these hand-carved you know, pews and everything, even the railing going down the middle, if you look at it, the shape is that three-leaf clover. And when it pops out the end, it's a perfect little symbol of, of that clover, of, of the Trinity. And so there's symbolism in all these things. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about it, but one of them, one of the stained glass windows I want to draw your attention to is this green one up here that has the tablets of the Ten Commandments on it. All right, and I mentioned this long time ago, and tonight we finally are there in Exodus. This is week 25 that we've been in the book of Exodus. So, but what you'll notice about that, and the one that I put up there, it's some kind of stone on the side of a lake, by, by a lake. I don't know why someone did that, but it's there for a reason, I'm sure. Um, is that they have four commandments on one side and six on the other, right? Why would they do that? Right? There's meaning behind it. There's symbolism there, and we're going to talk about that. So stay posted. We're going to get there, but it's going to be a while. So we are in Exodus, the gospel according to Moses. We are, again, in week 25, and we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments, which is actually a really bad way to talk about the Ten Commandments, because they're not commandments. And we're going to explain why. Um, that it's actually the ten words, or the fancy way to say it is a decalogue. Just, just ten words that God gives his people and the meaning behind it. So um, the whole passage is on your insert. If you have uh, Superman eyeballs, you can read it. Um, everybody else, it'll, all the scripture will be on the screen. You can follow along there as well. Okay, God shows up like usual. And if again, just context, they're on, they're on the mountain. They're on Mount Sinai. Last week, God shows up, not just to Moses, but to all the people, right? And he's gonna say, and he's gonna show up, I am holy. Right? This is who I am. And, 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 the, and the people, the Israelites, can see this fiery furnace resting on the top of the mountain. And Moses is going up and down. But now all of Israel is privy to the, to the conversation that Moses is now having with Yahweh. It's no longer just between Moses and God. Now all the people can hear the voice of God speak. So God shows up in verse 1. He says this. And God spoke all these words. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's reminding them, and we've seen this a million times in the book of Exodus. I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. I am the God who did this, nobody else. So let's look at these 10 words. What are they? I'm going to do a couple things tonight. One is we're just going to go through the theological implications of what it would have meant to Israel going through just the 10. We're going to see what, what would this have actually meant to them. The next section, uh, we're going to kind of look at, okay, 
do these apply to us? Do we need to obey them? As an American, are there any political significances, significances, significanti to this? That's not a word. Um, and then finally, looking at uh, what, what are we supposed to do with this then, right? So, so what? Um, and if you're not an American, same, same thing. Doesn't matter. All right, we'll, we'll get there. So now, you're, now, now you have to stay, right? What is he going to say about our government? Right, I'm going to tell you what Jesus says. That's not true, but kind of. Okay, one thing you need to know about these, these, uh, these words. I'm going to go back here. The Ten Commandments, they're more like a constitution, okay? So again, if, if you think of it, it's not just, hey, these are commands that these people are going to live by. It's a constitution that if you call yourself an Israelite, this is how you live. This is how you conduct yourself. This is who your God is. And so our constitution, if you want to view it that way in the United States, it's not necessarily laws or commands. It kind of is, but it bridges that. It's more of a, of a covenant that God is making with his people. This list is not exhaustive, right? There's 10 commands, right? It doesn't mean that there's others. We're going to find out in the Old Testament, there's 613 other commands that the Israelites are supposed to follow. All right, so there's more to it. So it's not exhaustive, even in the sense of it's going to single out, and a lot of the language is masculine in the, in the reading, right? So thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, that's just for men. No, it's not what it means, right? Um, and so we will, we will look at that as well. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, Yahweh shows up, and he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. And if you read this, and especially just remember context, they just got set free from slavery out of, ex, or out of Egypt. And what happened in Egypt? Remember, when we looked at the plagues, God specifically goes and says, this God is a false God. He's a puny God. He's fake. He's not even real. And I'm going to take, I'm going to go to his turf, this fake God's turf, and I'm going to own him. And I'm going to show you that there is only one true God, and it's me. But when you read this, you could almost make it sound like, um, are there other gods, but you're just the most powerful one? Um, and, and no, that's not the way you can read this. So I'm going to read just a, a quick commentary here. I can't, I can't read his name. I, don't, I can't even pronounce his name. So it's, it's someone who wrote a book on, on the 10 words um, saying this. The formulation of this command is not thou shalt not, but rather there will not be to you. I just, that's, that's just, it's, it's a matter of fact. The statement is not an imperative command, but an indicative one, whereby Yahweh, in light of the Exodus, declares the banishment of all other gods. Um, and you can look at Psalm 82, and this is not just gods, right? And that's what we gotta remind ourselves as well. Like, yes, these, these images they would have made or they would have worshiped, the, yes, that is very much so true, what he's saying, that there are no other gods, but you can't worship something else other than me that every single human that's ever been born is a worshiper of something or someone, right? So whether that's money or sex or my job or my family, things that are good, if I worship that, if that's my God, he's saying, no, you're not part of my people. You're not part of my community, my covenant. And so that's what he's saying here. The next one here, I kind of broke up into two parts. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. Okay, you should not make yourself an image. And again, why is it that God cannot be imaged? Well, because if you go all the way back to the garden, 
right, what's he do? He says he creates man in his own image, that human beings are his image bearers. And that as we live the way that God calls us to be, we become more human in that sense. We become more truly human, like Jesus. And so we image God by being truly human like Jesus, not by creating images. So another quick little history lesson. In the, in the 1500s, in the middle of the Reformation, there was this thing called the iconoclast. All right? This was a, a war that the reformers waged on the Catholic Church, in a sense. You can actually even see individuals shooting these images. Right? Why would they do that? This is why. Because they went to the Ten Commandments and they took it very literally when it said, you shall have no image. And so therefore, if you tried to make an image of God or Jesus or even some of the disciples or Mary, they were torn down. All these images that people made because they said, you don't even want to be drawn to it to worship this person, this image of this God. And so this was a big deal. Uh, And if you notice, even in this church building, uh, other than the one of Jesus over here, um, there's, there's, uh, yeah, right, you've got Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus, um, who, if you didn't know this, this is going to sound really weird, um, is actually albino because the man who passed away that did that, his children were, were very white, obviously, and so he was imaged in that way. Uh, so, uh, fun fact, Jesus was albino in that picture. Um, and then you've got, uh, but this, this would have been put in, though, in the, in the, in the 1930s. Right, the building itself was made in the 1870s. And if you look around, there's no images. There's no images of God. There's, there's symbolism and, and things and, and even the cross. There's only one cross up on that stained glass window. That they were very careful about their images and that rubbed off from the Reformation, which would have only been within 200 years of when this church was planted in 1841. So that's that. A uh, couple, couple pictures here. Right? This, is, this was Ulrich Zwingli's doing, right? going in and just literally chiseling off the faces of, of images of God and other people uh, because it was, it was bad. So he says, don't make yourself an image. All right. Next, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, Yahweh, am your God and I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. Unfortunately, this is one of those verses that have been used to abuse people, to oppress them, to suppress them, to enslave them, whatever it may be, to say your parents did this. Well, the Bible says this. And so therefore, as their children, you are gonna be punished. I'm gonna let Douglas Stewart uh, explain this a little better than I could. It says this, this command, what, what you re- we just read, does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of a predecessor generation. Contrary uh, to Deuteronomy 24, 16, or Exodus, uh, right? Because Deuteronomy 24 says this, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor for children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for their own sin. Uh, that's my reference again in 2 Kings. Rather, this often repeated theme speaks of God's determination to to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. That's a very different way of thinking about this this command. In other words, God's will, uh, excuse me, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they are doing to break my covenant because after all, they merely learned it from their parents who did it too. That's not what he's going to say. Instead, God will indeed punish generation after generation to the third and fourth generations. That just means for an indefinite amount of time until people learn. 
if they keep doing the same sorts of sins that prior generations did. Um, if the children continue to do the sins their parents did, they'll receive the same punishment as their parents. Okay? So this is not something saying, oh, my dad messed up, my dad sinned, that's why I have some kind of, of deformity. Right? And if you look at the New Testament, this is exactly what happens. There's a, there's a man, a lame man outside of the temple, and they go to Jesus and they say, did, did this man sin or did his dad, right? did his parents sin? And that's what they're talking. They're going to this, this verse. They're going to the Ten Commandments. Following, right? Dad sinned, therefore the sin, kid's got to pay. It's not, it's not at all what, what God is saying here. All right, moving along here. You shall not misuse the name of, of Yahweh your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I'm going to read Jen Wilkin here, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. So literally here is how this command is translated. You shall not bear up or lift up the name of your God to bear falsehood or emptiness. Okay. A lot of times, if, again, I know you, a lot of you know my story, grew up very conservative, Baptist, that kind of thing, that if, if I just said, gosh, right, my, my grandma would slap me across the face. It was, if you take God's name in vain meant saying the word God, right, using the phrase, oh my God, or or, you know, GD, right? Whatever, those, whatever that phrase was, that was a really frowned upon um, because that's taking God's name in vain. I didn't think about when, it, when I said his name. Fun fact, God's name isn't God. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that or not, right? A lot of, a lot of religions use the, the name God for their God. That's not his name. The whole idea of this is speaking up and saying, saying something about this God that I am saying, uh, I witness something, and I say that had to have been the hand of God. So for example, the Crusades, okay? We'll just take, take an easy one. That would have been taking God's name in vain. God wills it. The Christian God, Yahweh, he wills that we go into this community and kill. That is taking God's name in vain. And he will not forget that sin, All right? But this is not just someone sneezes and I say, God bless you. Oh, I use his name in vain, right? No, it's not what it means. All right. It's attributing something to God that wasn't God, or on the flip side of that, not attributing something to God that was God. We can be harmful on both sides of that. All right, she continues. That this means the way that we speak about God and the way that we give credit to God with our actions and our motives says something about who God is. And either it tells you the truth about him or it tells a lie about him. So when you don't take his name in vain, it means you don't, do not misrepresent the character of God in your thoughts, words, or deeds. All right, moving on here. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There's a lot that we could say about Sabbath. I wish that we could spend a whole week teaching on Sabbath because I honestly need it. I don't rest well. Uh, Sabbath in Hebrew literally means stoppage. Just stop. <laughs> Remember the stoppage day. Keep it holy. Right? We don't do that well. I mean, yesterday I had the day off and I'm outside weeding and raking and my wife's like, you take a nap every day. You stop all the time, which is true. But, you know, it's not a, it's like a full day of resting, you know. But remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But it doesn't mean simply stop, just stay in bed, don't get out of bed. That can't be the case, right? Or, or there, you couldn't have dairy cows, right? You, there's things that need to be done outside, but just rest. Rest your mind, rest your thoughts, rest your body, recuperate. It says the six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, is a stoppage to Yahweh your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your male or female, the servant or your animals, or any foreigner residing in your towns. Right? This is their covenant. 
There's something about Israel, there's something about being a child of God that says, people are gonna know that you're mine because you do something differently, and one of the things you do differently is you stop and you rest. Why? Verse 11, for in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, moving on. Honor your father and mother. Every parent uses this one, right? Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that God is giving you. This is one that I think, uh, at least me personally, I misunderstood as a kid. Um, I thought it was like, if I don't honor my mom or dad, like God, God's gonna kill me, or I'm gonna be struck down. And at the same time, as, as we're gonna look at, but Paul talks, this is the first commandment with promise. There's something here that if you obey and you honor your father and mother, that you're gonna live longer on this earth. And I remember this was a difficult thing for me to grasp after my dad died when I was 14, because there was nobody who honored his father and mother more than my dad did. And I remember you like, hey, well, God's a liar because my dad died when he was young. What's going on here? And that's not, that's not the point. So again, let me just read from Peter Enns here. He says this, as Paul notes in Ephesians 6, 2, this is the first commandment with promise. Honoring one's parents means long life in the land, right? This, we got to keep it in context. This is not just something we can take this out and immediately apply it to me right now in 2018. Oh, I honored my mom, therefore I'm going to live forever. That's not what it means, right? It was about them in the land of Canaan. But this should not be understood in an individual sense. In other words, dishonoring one's parents does not mean that a child, whether young or old, will die before his or her time. Rather, the reference to length of stay in the land is a warning to the Israelites as a whole, as a community, as a people group. A fact that underscores just how important this command is, by breaking God's commands, the people will jeopardize their possession of the land God has given them. And this promise is not a personal blessing, but a blessing for the people, right? It's a constitution. A blessing for all the people to possess a land under God's rule and thus become light to the, to other, to the other nations around them, which we looked a lot at last week. All right, again, these are not exhaustive. So you shall not murder, right? It's, it's gonna get detailed. What does this mean, right? What happens if, if it's manslaughter? If I accidentally kill somebody, there's laws for that in the Old Testament, Right, so you shall you you shall not do it. This is do not kill, do not murder. Right, but then we just got out of a passage, and we're going to see passages where God goes into the land of Canaan, where there's people trying to thwart God's plan of redemption. That God attacks them. Right, that's not murder. Then, okay, we're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. All right, again, you shall not commit adultery. Is the next one pretty straightforward? You're married, you're committed. And again, it's not exhaustive. Male, female, what's this mean? Jesus in the New Testament says, you've heard of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm telling you that if any man lusts after a woman, he's committed adultery already in his heart. What does that mean, that a, a woman can lust after a man? No, it's not what it's saying, right? It's not exhaustive. There's a principle, something deeper that's happening here that is uh, about being a community and a people of God. You shall not steal, it's pretty straightforward. Don't take stuff. It's not yours, okay? Moving on. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbors. This was a big one. Because if you think about it, right, they didn't have, um, oh, what's the, what's the, what's the, no, cameras called in London? They got a name. What is it? You know what I'm talking about? They're like, they're like everywhere. 
I'm not, I'm just hearing whispers. Okay, well, there's a, there's a phrase, there's a thing that it's called in, in Europe where they got cameras everywhere uh, where they can follow everybody all the time. They didn't have that back then. Uh, they don't have DNA sampling and testing and all, they don't have any of that. All they have is the witness of other people. That's what they have is the testimony of other people. So if somebody does something wrong or illegal, all they have is the testimony of other people and what happened and what they heard. And so they weren't allowed to bear false witness. This is why in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus is giving uh, the rules for disciplining somebody out of your community, out of your congregation, he goes back to this. And he says, if this is gonna happen, you need to have two or three witnesses with you. And it was exactly the same way. I could not just accuse somebody of doing something wrong. I had to have a witness, right? And it's the same, same reason. And, and you know, we, 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 like, we like to use that phrase that Jesus uses, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. Um, that is talking about not bearing false witness, not about a prayer group uh, on a Wednesday night, which is true. But if I show up by myself and I pray, guess what? God's with me, right? So it's, it's kind of cool. You don't need two or three people gathered together. Uh, you can do it all on your own. All right. Don't give false testimony on you. Don't be a bad witness to what's happening and accuse somebody of doing something wrong or lying on that. And the final one, uh, number 10, is really just a summary of the previous five. All right, you shall not covet, right? Don't desire something that's not yours because how do you enforce this? You can't. How do you enforce somebody coveting, right? Oh, hey, sorry, looking at that guy's donkey a little bit too long. I don't, right, how do you do this? Right? This is a heart. This is a people that are taking something on to represent who their God is. You should not cover your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All right? Just don't covet anything. Stop coveting. Right? There's, there's something about this one that wraps up the other ones as well. Um, and I'm going to get to why that, that summarizes the last, the previous five in just a little bit. And Okay, now I want to wrap up the passage here. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet, again, this loud trumpet, when God comes to dwell with his people, there's this trumpet that sounds and blasts. They saw the mountain and the smoke, and they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance, remember? Because the law said if you touch the mountain, you're going to be stoned or shot with arrows. Right? Don't even come close to the holiness of God. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourselves, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. All right, there's something about the holiness and the noise that came from this mountain of the voice of God that terrified them. But I love Moses' response here. He says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Right, don't be afraid because he's your God. He's covenanting with you. This is how you be his people. But if you're not going to act and behave like his people, okay, well then, then you're going to be in trouble. God has come to test you. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the people remained at his distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And Yahweh said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any other gods alongside me and do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, which he's going to explain exactly what that means later on. Your sheep and goats will be, uh, and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with distressed stones, uh, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. 
and do not go up to my altar on any steps where your private parts may be exposed. All right, a little, little need of detail there, right? Because there's just shame, right? He's just saying this is something that if, you, if there's shame involved in the nakedness of an individual then, and, then, and then actually going up to the altar of God, um, that that is not allowed. So we're going to be careful in that. We're not even going to have any steps going up to the altar. Um, they didn't wear underwear in the, in the day. Okay, that's, that's going to change, though. God's going to say wear underwear in a couple chapters, actually. Who knew? Okay, are we supposed to obey these? Oh, let me read this quote. I put it in there for a reason. Well, this is kind of a summary of all the ten. Okay, what seems to be of a great help to understanding the original purpose of the Ten Commandments is their function in the community. I hope you, hope you've gotten that. These are commands given by a saving God to a recently saved people from whom he has a national purpose. Okay? In other words, obeying these commandments didn't save them. It never saved them. Obeying the commands and law of God doesn't save anybody. It only comes down to the grace of God that led his people out of slavery and into freedom. He's already saved them. These are just a way to show that they are his people. As God's people, his special possession, the Israelites must know what he requires of them. Being an Israelite is not a matter of private, personal piety. And if I've said it once in here, I've said it a million times. My relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's never meant to be private. I'm not supposed to share this with other people. It has a vertical and it has horizontal dimension. And obedience to God is required on both fronts. After all, if the Israelites cannot behave properly toward their own God and cannot treat each other as a special people, which as we looked at last week, so are we as Gentiles, as God treats them, how can they ever be a light to the Gentiles? Look at Isaiah 45. God says, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. You are going to be my plan of redemption. It's going to come from you. How can they ever be a kingdom of priests in a world that does not know the true God? So it starts with us. It starts with our church. It starts with our community. Yes, personally, with me, yes. With you, yes. But with us as a church. What does the neighborhood think about us? Okay. How are we supposed to obey these? I want to get back to the uh, stained glass, right? And if you look at churches, this one included, a lot of stained glass that has been created to depict the Ten Commandments and always, not always, sometimes there's three on one side and then, um, what is my math? Seven on the other side, right? But usually it's got the four and then the six. Why, why is that? Well, it is thanks to uh, Roger Williams. Not this Roger Williams. Uh, your favorite keyboard player. Sorry, I thought it was going to be funnier than what it was. It was stupid. Uh, this Roger Williams, all right? Uh, Roger Williams, probably not a very well-known uh, guy, uh, but he was born in London in 1603. And uh, he would have studied in King James Court. Okay, so King Jimmy, the guy that helped translate the, you know, the, the authorized King James 1611 version. Uh, he would have been in his court. He would have learned from him. He would have been taught by him. Uh, and, 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 and this guy, Roger Williams ends up leaving England to come to the new country, come to New Britain. And he gets here and he realizes something's not right. Something the way that we apply our laws. Because back then, and again, the Reformation just happened. All right, John Calvin, hero of mine, is punishing people. Why? Because they're not obeying all these 10 commandments. They use God's name in vain. When they say, God bless you after somebody sneezes, guess what? They got fined and sent to prison. Why? Because they enforced it. There was no such thing as separation of church and state until this guy, 
All right? So Roger Williams comes to the United States and he notices some really interesting, interesting things. And he notices it about the Ten Commandments and he points it out and he writes uh, uh, several books literally on the separation of church and state. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, what he says are the first four. All right? No other gods. Don't use my name in vain. Uh, no images of me. And remember the Sabbath. Those are between mankind and God. It's got a horizontal implication. We can't enforce that. I can't imprison somebody because they don't love God with all their heart. I can't do that. How do you do that? But what I can do and what we can do as a government, as a new government that was starting here, is we can enforce the lay at ladder six because that is a horizontal relationship between mankind, man to man. And so he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. And he says this, at the time when there was, oh, this was, I wrote a really stupid long paper on Roger Williams in seminary. So I know it sounds dumb, but I'm quoting myself here. I'm not stuck up like that, but it just, it just works, okay? Uh, at a time when there was an intense anti-Semitism, so anti-Jewish, uh, and there was intense anti-Semitism throughout all of Christendom, Williams penned these words in his plea. And this is how I got away with like doing big quotes as I would just quote other people. I hardly wrote anything. Uh, it is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. That was a radical, radical way of thinking. And it changed this country, at least in particular. Williams continues. <laughs> That's all I do. Williams continues. And they are only to be fought against with that sword, which is only, in soul matters, able to conquer to wit the sword of God's spirit, the word of God that never is a government supposed to pick up the sword and then supposed to enforce what they think are their personal convictions and even biblical convictions because they shouldn't cross lines. They can do the horizontal. I can, as a government and as a country, we have the freedoms here to vote on certain things, right? But community, right? we, we don't murder, we don't steal, you get punished for those things, but some of those six things we, we don't enforce. Is that okay? Right? It's about God's sword of the spirit that should go and conquer, not our own doing. He goes on and he says this, or I say this, the idea that the sword of the government should never take matters of the church into her own hands was, a very, was very separatist indeed. He takes this a step further in regards to church's uh, infatuation with Israel. That's a whole other sermon in itself. Uh, but let me pause here and say this. Israel was a theocracy. And Roger Williams knew that. A theocracy means led by God. God ruled it. He was the king. He was the president. There was no human ruler, and that didn't happen until much, much later. And Roger Williams knew that. And so he says, I can take principles from Scripture, and we can do it on a horizontal level. But these laws that were created for Israel were created when Israel had its own king of God the Father. That's not the United States. So he says this, William says, the state of the land of Israel, the kings and the people thereof in peace and war, 
is provided figurative and ceremonial and no pattern nor president for any kingdom or civil state in the world to follow. That what was commanded of the Israelites was given to Israel, but yet it's also given to us as we looked at last week, the church, the true Israel, that God came to this earth to redeem and he follows up and he says, you are a royal priesthood, Gentile. You are a chosen nation. Same words I use with Israel. I'm using it about you. And these laws and rules, we only talk about it because we're in the United States. There's not too many other countries that worry about, man, what's Israel doing today? What, what laws should we follow? What laws should we enact when it comes to Jesus' words? We need to live it internally. Not count on our government to have people follow these rules. I'm not trying to get too political. We say this all the time, and, I, and I'm the same way, that we're political atheists. Uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm, I'm glad I'm an American. I'm happy to be an American, right? I was on the 4th of July, you know, Ray Charles, right? I'm proud to be, you know, right? I love it, right? I am. But I cannot cross the two. Because I believe, and I will always believe, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, not the government. And that's exactly what Roger Williams, the guy who literally wrote the book on separation of church and state. Okay, what is the greatest command? So we follow these. All right, I think you've probably connected the dots. Yes, we do, but it's, it's internal. It's not word for word. There's something about them that we need to take into place. And so Jesus teaches this and says this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? All right, it's 613 laws. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first four of the big 10. Love God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And the first this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the next six. And he says this, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And we see from those two, the 10 stem out of that. And then if we did our due diligence, which we're not going to do, of studying the 613 laws, they would stem all from this. That as a believer in my community, if I was known as a person or we were known as a church that loved God with everything and then loved our neighbor as ourself, even sometimes to where it's awkward, saying, I'm not just going to let you continue living like this because I love you and care for you, but I'm not going to go over there and thump you over the head with my moralism. It's not what we're called to do. What I love about this, Jesus says this, these two commands, right? Everything's wrapped up in this. And, he get, and as he gets done saying this too, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, these guides who, who obey all the commands, you, you, you can't do it. You've fallen short. And when I read just these two commands, I look at them and I say, I can't do it, which then puts me in a position to either fall into legalism Right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to study. I'm going to be a good, really good Christian. Or saying license. I just can't. So what's the point of trying? And the whole point of this and what Jesus is saying, guess what? You can't. But guess what? He did. And he does it perfectly. And now that he lives with us and dwells with us 
and his spirit indwells us, we now can live and trust his gospel to enable us to obey these two commandments with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind. For time's sake, I'm going to just read this last quote, and then we'll be done here with the application. If the law can be so prominent within the New Testament, all right, just obey this, do this, live this certain way, flee sexuality, whatever they may be. He's talking about all these laws. If the law can be so prominent within the New Testament, it seems difficult to maintain any sort of strict law, grace dichotomy between the Old and New Testament. Old Testament was all about these laws. New Testament's about grace, man. I'm, I live under grace. Law in the New Testament must be seen in the context of grace, just as it was in the Old Testament. This is why both Jesus, a lot of verses, and Paul, some verses, can call on the new people of God, the church, made up of not just one ethne, but made up of Jews and Gentiles in fulfillment of God's plan to keep these commandments. In fact, Jesus even makes some of them more stringent. These commands are not given so that we can be good citizens, but so that we can reflect even more fully the image of God in which we participate through our union with the risen Christ. These commandments are important, but my covenant with Yahweh, with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is through the blood of Jesus Christ, that he has bought me with a price, he has purchased me with his blood, that's my covenant. And so again, just like the Israelites, I don't obey these commands because it keeps me saved. I don't obey these commands because it gets me saved. I have already been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've passed through not the waters of the Red Sea. I've passed through the, the blood of Christ. and I've come out on the other side clean. And there's nothing I can do to go back. And so I obey these commands and these laws because I get to, because I want to, because I am a citizen of heaven. So, in closing, do you love God? It starts there. You've never heard this before. This is all new to me. Man, it's like this Jesus thing. He loves me. I don't have to do anything. I just got to love him. Yeah. Yeah, I love God. And finally, do you love your neighbor as yourself? And this is a question, right? Pharisees ask, who is my neighbor? And I think in a culture, in a time, in our society, whether St. Paul or Minnesota or the United States in general, we need to love our neighbors. We need to love people who may not have had the life that we had privileged in our little suburbs. I know not everyone has a childhood like that. Who are your neighbors? You care for them, genuinely, right? Because again, these lists aren't exhaustive. It's my heart there to love them. Will you bow your head as we pray? Actually, sorry, take that back. I'm gonna explain communion first. I always do that. That really bad transition. Preaching 101, if you're gonna be a preacher, don't do what I just did. We get now a chance to enter into communion, all right, to take these elements of, of the juice that represents the blood of Jesus and the bread that represents the body of Christ. All right, these two elements, there's nothing magical about them. I'm not gonna hold them up and pray over them because Jesus did that thousands of years ago when he died on the cross. And all we ask is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you love God of all your heart and your soul, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Right, not just, no, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm good to my neighbor. No, man, I'm with you on that. Do you love Jesus? And if you do, we invite you to take place and have the juice and the bread. There's a gluten-free option on this site. Will you bow your head now with me? Heavenly Father, gracious God, 
I thank you for who you are as our God, as a covenant God with your people, the true people, your, your church, your bride, who you bought with a price. God, I pray now let's reflect on, on these 10 commandments that we would go back to the words of Jesus and look at these two, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and because of that, that it would be reflected with our neighbors, with other people, people that are like us and people who aren't like us, people who speak our language and people who don't speak our language. God, that you would be honored and glorified and that as we do our due diligence as even citizens here now, that we would be citizens of you, that we would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that is the hope of the world. God, I thank you for what you're going to do and what you have done. It's in Christ's most precious name that we pray. Amen.